Welcome to Creating Synergy, where we explore what it takes to transform. We are powered by Synergy IQ. Our mission is to help leaders create world-class businesses where people are safe, valued, inspired, and fulfilled. We can only do this with our amazing community. So thank you for listening. Hey there, Synergizers, and welcome back to another episode of the Creating Synergy podcast. I am Daniel Franco, your host, and today we have a remarkable human being on the show named Lisa Chesser. That's Lisa spelled L-E-E-S-A. A little bit about Lisa. She is a person with many, many talents, being a non-executive director, advisory board chair, senior skilled leader, and a mentor. She served as the Minister for Disabilities, Mental Health and Substance Abuse that led the NDI's decision-making, delivery of service reform and transformation in South Australia. She was previously the chair of the Public Works Committee where she oversaw large public infrastructure construction projects such as the $450 million Adelaide Oval redevelopment. Lisa now runs her own strategic advice consultancy named Blue Sky Consulting where she specialises in strategic governance solutions. She also coaches, mentors, chairs, and builds advisory boards where she primarily works with the private sector in in commercial enterprises, startups, SMEs, non-for-profit organizations, and social enterprises, helping them in health, human services, defense, and space industries. It was a great chat with Lisa today where we broached many topics, including her time into politics, women in business, and all things directorship and boards. If you enjoy the episode, which I know you will, please like and share with your friends and colleagues and check us out on synergyiq.com.au. Cheers. Welcome back to the Creating Synergy podcast. My name is Daniel Franco, your host, and today we have the lovely Lisa Chesser. Welcome. Thank you so much, Daniel. Lisa, really uh, honoured, I guess, to have you here. Michelle and I think very highly of you and we've had a lot of conversations. Thank you. Can you tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself, your background and how you came to where you be, where you are today? Um, let's see. I trained in a hospital administration in Queensland. Um, I came out of Queensland in the 80s and came to Adelaide originally for a job at the Repatriation Hospital in data and data collection, which is cancer registration, uh, the basis of epidemiology, and then I've been in Adelaide since 92. So when everyone was leaving due to the state bank, I was arriving and I saw (laughs) Adelaide was a beautiful place to live, great quality of life if you've got a great job here. And I've stayed ever since. I'm married, divorced, had kids, had a fantastic career in Adelaide and still love it. Perfect. Thank you. So right now you are running your own work? Yes. Yeah, so three business? Yeah, so three years ago I founded Blue Sky Consulting Australia. Um, and Blue Sky Consulting is named after my happy places. I love to sail and I love to fly, but I also love strategic thinking. And I've come out of state government. I was a state government minister and a member of parliament for eight years. And before that, had spent most of my adult life in the labour movement and around politics before the health administration journey took me there. So health and data, governance um, are the things I care about. Blue Sky does non-executive directorships. I sit on a board in Sydney Community Options Australia that does hospital and the home type spaces, Mm -hmm. supporting people with complex lives who need support. Um, And I also do advisory board work. I'm a certified advisory board chair. Brilliant. 
So we're going to touch on a few of those little areas as we go along. Firstly, I'd like to touch on your political background. It's um, it's one that uh, you – how long were you in parliament for? I joined the Labor movement in Queensland just around the time the Goss government was being elected, but it was just – I had a, a nine-to-five job then, so I mm-hmm. didn't – was just a volunteer. Then I came and got involved and became a party official and founded Progressive Business, the corporate events and fundraising arm for the party, went into parliament for the seat of Taylor – um, to replace Trish White mm-hmm. and was there for eight years. So that's um, Paralawi, Edinburgh out to Virginia So and used to have the GMH and Elizabeth South. So yeah. complex and it went through a lot of changes obviously because yeah. GMH was downsizing and eventually closed. Yeah. But the heart of it really was the defence base. So was privileged enough um, and really honoured to serve as a parliamentary secretary in defence industries and veterans affairs, something I'm still very passionate about. I yeah, love defence and space and my grandpa was in the RAF, so there's a lot of value alignment yeah. there. Of, Is that where the sort of the family flying? Some yep, absolutely. In? He helps. Um, was he set, in the Air Force? Was that yep, yeah, yeah, he was a wing commander and had an AFC and a DFC, which is a pretty rare combination from okay. 30 Squadron. Um, Can around. you explain that, AFC, for the common folk like myself who don't understand. Okay, they're they're pretty significant um, medals and awards for service. Um, He was an instructor in Tamora but then he went to up to Papua New Guinea and was a wing commander in that space and did some really – some of the things that he got it for I still haven't been able to track down through the War Memorial Um, and – he went on to do civilian aviation. I've got photos of him flying first planes out to Australia from um, the west coast of America, so when jets yeah, and wow. civil aviation, he was an examiner. And um, my mum was an air hostess because that's what you were in the yeah, 60s. Yeah. So flying it's sort a of been a job back then. Isn't it? Yeah, well, I guess it was. Flying was still special then. Yeah, it wasn't it was. every day, although it's pretty special again after no, last year. Yeah, yeah now. Especially what we've been through. Um, but it's something I'm – they're my happy spaces. So I guess it reflects that my values to the electorate were very connected to defence and veterans and also horticulture and food bowl of Virginia. Uh, it was new new housing. It was peri-urban. So it was an exciting electorate. There was lots of variety. I love serving it and I believe in servant leadership mm-hmm. and then was fortunate enough to be – a past second mental health and substance abuse um, to Jack Snelling and eventually became a minister and was the Minister for Disabilities, Mental Health and Substance Abuse between 2016 and 2017 for a short period of time until I left Parliament in 2018. 2018. So the final part of your political journey is one that it was a tough period for you mm-hmm. uh, leaving leaving Parliament, um, reputational damage potentially came into the fold through that period. Hmm. How did you personally cope through that time? I think every person in their life has a annus horribilis like the Queen had. I think that year was truly horrible in a number of ways. Um, My sister just had a baby and had breast cancer. I was in family court with my ex-husband for children in custody. I ended up with pneumonia and pleurisy. That was just in my private life, mm. let alone what was going on with mm, Oakton. Yeah. And so there was a long-standing situation that arose that had started long before I got into Parliament. But when it 
came to my service time, some horrible things came up and I remember reading the report the first time that I read it and I was in a family space and it was an Easter time and I was with my family and my father was in the room and he said, why are you so upset? Mm. And I was quite emo- very emotional about it because I was so outraged. Mm. Um, then it was about fixing the problem and then it's a case of surviving that. Yeah. It obviously triggered an ICAC and there's a report and people had lots of scathing things to say to me about my performance in that space but at the end of the day I know what I did and yep. I know I did it for the right reasons um, and my truth can probably never be aired in the public space because of the legislation in South Australia mm. and that's all I can say about it but I walked away from politics and did the right thing for my team yep. and the right time I've got a lot of learnings from that that yeah. are useful to corporate sector mm-hmm. now um, and it helps me reach into deeper spaces when I coach and mentor female founders because uh, you have to be vulnerable to rebuild yourself and you have to be strong and resilient. And I guess resilience is a thread that I've had all through my life and I had to reach deep into that time for that um, to protect myself and my family and walking away from my career at that time was the right thing to do on a number of reasons. Well done for getting through it. It would have been an extremely tough time. You touched on resilience, which is especially now going through a pandemic, a real buzzword. Uh, Businesses are really concentrating on the resilience of their people, uh, coping, working from home, Mm. being apart, being uh, being separated from from their team members, Um, also dealing with just a whole bunch of adversity in the world that we're going through right now. can you touch on the storages of resilience that you that you uh, you work through? How you know that that gut feeling of of that sickening feeling, and we've all had that where things haven't gone our way, and, and yeah. you know this common sense of approval of what people think about us is is important. How did you manage and, and wade your way through that internally? I guess um, I wasn't aware of it until I got to Parliament that I was reasonably resilient. I'm an optimist by nature. I've always reasonably happy, sunny personality. But being in Parliament and resilience is a muscle you have to build. It's just, you know, not something that is given to you naturally. Mm-hmm. Circumstances. It's a muscle. Yeah, you have to practice it. Yeah. Um, but it was un- <laughs> yeah, un- subconsciously yeah. I was prepared in that sense. I think that time though when you're sitting in a really negative media environment for a long period of time, it can actually weaken you and I think my health took the hit for that and I think at the time I took things very personally because I'm, I've always been a person even through my childhood that was responsible. I'd never had my capacity or capability questions so that was a deeply personal experience and I've learned from that um, and I believe in learning. I believe in moving forwards and a growth mindset. So the things that I've learned from those experiences are that um, the people you surround you with, um, your top ten values, my values are slightly different now to what they were then. Mm-hmm. Um, I probably have ten values. I think I've rearranged the top five now and loyalty is somewhat further down the chain mm-hmm. that it used to be. But do I still hold strong political 
views. Yeah, absolutely. I've been surrounded with public affairs and the media since I was a kid mm-hmm. and always was nerdy about show and tell, wanted to talk about those sort of topics. <laughs> so it wasn't surprising that I ended up in politics. Now I do um, impact and change and making the world a better place, so purpose and impact. I do it in my business life in a different way. So I'm still on that path um, and it's still a service path. I absolutely think how I work with people I support is about making their businesses thrive and survive and grow and most of the businesses I'm doing business with actually have well-being or uh, impact on the world's gnarly problems <laughs> at their heart. And at I know that's heart. what you guys do too yeah. and which is why we've clicked. Connected, yeah, absolutely. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd really like to touch on the values piece that you brought up. Mm. You, you mentioned that, you know, three or four years ago you had a different set or a different order of values to where where they are now, which I believe is a really important point. Um, there are some fundamental values that people can hold and they can keep them top and front and centre for their Mm. whole life. Mm. There are others that will drop in and drop out depending on their experience, their wisdom, their understanding of certain situations. What's your importance on what value do you place on your values and how how close to your heart do you um, you draw on them on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, they're next to, uh, you know, my work carol at home. Mm. Um, They're there. And I've reorganised them. They're quite, um, integrity is really important. And to be able to say, you know, you did the right things for the right reasons with the information you had at hand. um, I know I can sit comfortably in that space. And I wouldn't have got through that tough year if I hadn't had that at Mm. the heart of myself. Um, But courage, I'm a great believer in being courageous. Um, I've learned. So what is just Cor- courageous means yeah. that you you push yourself sometimes into the areas that are uncomfortable mm. because sometimes growth comes with that uncomfortable. So that feeling of I'm going into something. This is a little bit uncomfortable, but holding yourself to account, yeah, and walking through those doors is that sort of yeah. I think I'm curious by nature, highly yeah. curious. Um, I've posted something about curiosity on my LinkedIn this week, and it. It, there's fearlessness mm-hmm. and courage is usually part of courage is fearlessness. That doesn't mean that you're not feeling it but you acknowledge it and you walk through it. Mm. Um, I think curiosity about life and how you approach it is one of my values and I bring that to the boardroom, how I question and ask question, questions. I try and do them in a constructive way. Um, behaving with integrity and honesty is really important to me. Mm. I think they're probably some of my top fours but yeah. self-compassion is something that is is um i've learned more about in the last couple of yeah, years yeah i think it's something we're all learning can you give us a little bit of, of your understanding of self-compassion now yeah so people talk about resilience mm-hmm. um but i think if you're talking the yin and yang i think self-compassion is the other side the twin on the coin because you can't okay. be endlessly resilient yeah. because your empathy jar gets exhausted and you need to care for you and need to do self-care and um, as a good leader you have to actually practice that so whether that's like I've got a mental health first aid certificate and it helps shape some of the conversations I have with people sometimes 
self-compassion, we talk about gratitude now, we talk about these things and mindfulness much more. All of those skills are times, things that we pull on at different times in our lives or every day. It can be a simple thing um, like going and getting your lunch away from your keyboard but it's a much more profound thing when you're talking in a coaching sense of how you create boundaries mm-hmm. in your workplace and in your life and creating a safe space and Increasingly in boardrooms, we're talking about psychologically safe places where bad behaviours are not tolerated. And I can honestly say when you look at the federal parliament this week and the allegations Mm. of the rape case and that woman being heard and and the word that the people are even discussing it in the media and the way the human resources have been dealt with and how she's been dealt with, I don't know if politics is very much a psychologically safe place. In fact, a lot of people don't want to have these conversations in that space and it's because people don't want to be vulnerable. They're, it's an ego. It's a very ego-driven world, yep. yeah. And it's considered a weakness and they don't support people very well in that space. So It's a, it's a common question. So you've pla- – okay. So that well-being space is something that yeah. is really important to me now and I, it was important when I was the minister, in fact um, – Three years ago, I did some space about the wellbeing policy that is being run out across the state now. I'm really pleased to see the new government that came in also see the importance of wellbeing as a society and a state. I'm really glad that we're doing work in that space. I wish Australia would do more work in wellbeing, not just mental health, because I think it's a fundamental set of schools that your kids and my kids I want them to have that growing up where it's not a Band-Aid that we fix up afterwards. I want that to be as a part of financial literacy about how to be a good employee, well-being if they're not whole and working on themselves and knowing the skills to make themselves better, really high-performance teams and a high-performing society that's harmonious and (laughs) kind to each other and compassionate and thrives are based out of some of these good human behaviors. They are. Yeah, it's it's funny when you think about well-being and mental toughness. It's almost like if you put it in an analogy of building a house, it's the foundation of the house. You you actually need to have a solid foundation to be able to hold the the rest of the home up. And um, yeah, it's one that's worked on from a young age uh, consistently, uh, you know, the growth mindset, all these things schools are now introducing, which is exciting, I think, because yeah. my daughter's coming home and going, uh, Dad, what's you know, this is a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. And so now we're having conversations around the house. I've, I'm Mindset by Carol Dweck's one of my favourite books of all time. Mm. So I've been pushing it from word go. But the, just those conversations <clears throat> with my with my daughters now, is um, if they're sort of upset about something or they've made a mistake and they get frustrated, really angry with themselves, they cry, whatever it might be, mm. uh, my comment to them is what type of mindset do you think you're working with right now? Is it a fixed mindset or a growth mindset? And so, oh, yeah, Dad, you're right, it's a fixed mindset. So they then change their attitude and they get on. So, uh, yeah, I think it's a re- it starts from, from when you're young and we need to introduce this. I think there's a lot of stigma and labelling and judgement in society and mm. you think about that in social media. And trolling and all, you know, you're bathed in that acid sometimes when you do a lot of media content um, and people go for simplistic things and don't necessarily want to go for the deeper person-centred story. Um, So 
for kids, I think teaching the media literacy skills as alongside social media and digital yeah, skills are really important that they've got the resilience and self-compassion that they make mistakes and learn from them. I've had to learn from mistakes in that time of my life um, and not taking it personally would probably be one of them but also getting really brand and reputation management. It was a unique unique time in my life and yeah, I'm pleased I will never have to do that again. Absolutely. I want to just touch quickly on your self-compassion and when we're talking about mm -hmm. there's two questions that came out of what, uh, what you were um, talking about earlier. Number one, self-compassion for a servant-based leader. You're saying you're a servant-based mm -hmm. leader. We can off, and, and there are many of, of us out there, the servant-based leaders, we, will, we you know, aim to put our people before, mm -hmm. um, before ourselves. When, wh where do you draw the boundary? Where do you actually realize that, you know, on, you know, if, say you've got a team of 20 or 30 people working underneath you and mm. you're always putting them before yourself because that's what you believe a servant-based mm. leader should do. You know, you mentioned boundaries earlier. H how do you set boundaries? How do you go about um, actually understanding when it's time to go, you know what, today I need to concentrate on myself and, and recalibrate and refresh or zonk out or whatever it might be? It's easy for me now being in my own business. Um, my job mm. is to support others, you yeah. know, as an advisory board chair. And I come in and help them with specific tasks. Yeah. So my teams aren't big anymore, but what I do is build people up or be the safe space that they can come to when they need to refocus yeah. and maybe not just do strategic intent for building their business or solving a problem in their business um, or executing a long-term strategic plan, but also talking through a challenge that they might have with their colleagues. So my job now is empowering people to be humble, successful, um, strong, humane yeah. and whole servant leaders. I think adaptive leadership is you hear a lot of people talking about yeah. that in MBA yeah. circles. I still find a lot of people talk about servant leadership and the people I work with often they've heard one lot of MBAs talk but if you drill down and look at their true values when you do an exercise like that with them, they are very much servant leadership. So my job, um, the way I get to be a servant leader now is um, vicariously through supporting other teams. Yeah. So if you were to give advice to those who are in that situation yeah. about setting boundaries, could, is there any advice that you would give them? A mentor circle of people that you can mm, safely, draw safely yeah. draw on for wisdom. Yeah. It doesn't have to be our mentor. I think there's a lot of people who race around collecting mentors <laughs> and I've had people approach me like that too but they don't actually know. It's sort of like it's something, oh, I know I need a mentor but they don't actually know what they want from the mentor relationship. I think coaching and mentoring are similar but not the same. You might have someone who's in your mentor circle that helps you with a particular challenge you're trying to either master or improve. Correct. Or you might be looking for someone who you can just be psychologically safe with and decant with about whether it's balancing domestics and the childcare run or a safe space to vent with and reframe mm -hmm. your conversation like you were talking about with your children. Mm -hmm. um, but you also might have 
professional mentors that are with you for a long period of time across your whole career that you know their deep wisdom and they're seeing you grow and they're committed to your long-term growth journey. So some mentorships are short, sharp and situational. Some are psychological safety spaces and others are full life progressions. I'm sure you've got people... In those I'm a, sort of, I'm a people collector, Lisa. So yeah, there's a few. So that I mentor, <laughs> I think it's better to have a circle of mentor, mentors, yeah, rather absolutely. than just one. I agree. Well, you, if I, I have a lot of people that I draw on, uh, you know, yourself it would definitely be in that space. I, I, I look at it in a way of what do I believe they're most skilled at. Uh, and if I'm in that situation, what questions can I ask them, right? So your mentor is, is as good as the questions that you ask, I believe. Mm. So, And I treat books kind of the same, right? I buy books and I have them. I've got hundreds of books on my bookshelf at home. I haven't read them all, but if there's a situation in my life that calls on some knowledge and there's a book that's got a little bit of a pearl of wisdom in there, I'll pick up that book, skip to that chapter, read that bit, and I've got what I needed. Then I'll mm. draw on people's advice as well. So... Yeah, I do. I think you're 100% right. It's about picking the information you need as opposed to hoping every one person's got all the answers. And I think also mentorships, you need to, um, because everyone's time's critical, is going in with that attitude of this is what I'd like to be discussing with you today. So being prepared, doing your homework yeah, before absolutely. you end up yeah. at the coffee What's table. The agenda, correct, Wait, yeah. yeah, what what are we like? Do the niceties, how are you, Daniel, mm. what's going on with family, but then cut to the chase of the piece that we're, what's the brain gym you want to do together yeah, that day? That's right. Like what do you want to unpack? Um, what what support do you need? Um, what strategies are you searching to find in the jigsaw puzzle to make this work and yep. can we find that together or have you considered it from a different lens? Flip the puzzle up and relook at it and it might just be reframing it. Yeah. Or um, connecting you to another person that gives you that missing piece of the jigsaw puzzle. Spot on. Another point you made in a previous, uh, we were talking about politics and vulnerability and Mm. how ego, vulnerability, the two uh, aren't, well, ego is definitely at play, vulnerability is not. Having played in the political field for, for some time, why do you believe, like why can't we have a, a leader of, leading the state. I mean, Stephen Marshall seems to be a nice guy, but there's a lot of political speak there. Why can't we have... um, Why can't politicians in general be more vulnerable? Why is it that they're always conscious about what they're saying and um, they're always answering things in a diplomatic almost as if it's pre-written? Perception Mm. and how... Everything you say is under a microcosm. Um, mm. It's a 24-hour media cycle. Because sometimes you just want the person up there to be human. It's like, all right, you yeah, know, well, going. So I think sort yeah, of Yeah, but that people we... have personas. They mm. have persona dramatists. They've got yeah. a character they're playing when they're at work. Um, and sometimes you see the real person shine through. Sometimes it's not to say they're false, but there's a work Daniel and there's a home Daniel. Yeah, that's right. And and the media cycle doesn't allow people to get that sort of nuanced communication. They're there to deliver some facts. Yeah. They get in, they get out. 
um, their opinion leaders and agenda setters, so they go in and do that. I guess um, sometimes in the chamber you will see those moments, but then those moments of vulnerability are very rarely on the news. I think the abortion um, bill was debated till very early in uh, this week in the parliament. You would have seen that on the floor as people spoke this week. I'm no, sh- I'm sure of that. Although I don't listen to that mm. world anymore. Mm. That's my past. Um, but I've seen people be that that genuine vulnerable person. I think there's also a lot of stigma about being vulnerable. Yeah. Um, and talking about things. They need a bit of Brene Brown. They know. need a bit of yeah. They, a bit of there's a courageous courageousness is part of that vulnerability that she talks about is. It's knowing the right spaces to do it. Yeah. And the media doesn't necessarily go for that sort of story. Which is unfortunate. I'd love to see it. Well, I guess, you know, the stories I love are like Australian Story and ABC yeah. where people warts and all. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, 100% right. Moving on to another topic now, you play a really big role in women in business. Which I is- Yeah, I'm, I'm helping build an ecosystem for female founders. I I think one of the things I do in my uh, pro bono life because I still do a lot of Mm -hmm. not-for-profit or unpaid work is um, I help more aware with the Chooks Facebook group. I'm an admin there. So that's a community of online women. It's not a news source group. No, no, we didn't get caught up with Facebook (laughs) yesterday. Um, you have to answer three questions to get in and you've got to abide by some community standards okay. so for men, the, men, men and women and it's about... I saw, I saw both, okay. Yeah, it's yeah. about, yeah, we're net allies what's to the make Facebook? change. So Chooks. Chooks. How do you spell um, that? As in, as in cluck cluck. Oh, yeah, chicken, chicken. Chicken, oh, chicken chooks. Um, it's about really ending the gender investment gap. It's mm. about looking at patriarchy and how system change can come to allow um, a more equitable and inclusive world. It's about ending the gender investment gap for female founders or small business owners, sharing wisdom. So it's a well of wisdom for women and we have all sorts of debates but it's got to have a gender lens. So that's one way I'm supporting that as a feminist. Um, I'm also sitting on the Hen House Co-op, which is a cooperative, which is single goal is about ending the gender investment gap for women who are uh, female founders and SMEs who have got ideas and want to do that so so talking about the investment gap right mm. where you're working is that similar to the pay wage gap where you feel that yeah wage parity yeah, yeah absolutely women yeah. won't negotiate for a new wages like you know uh i, I don't think women won't negotiate not, sorry, they, it, they, i think they won't threaten i guess like a male would i think <laughs> women um a different style of negotiation yeah. and so sometimes it's finding their voice to be as forthright mm. as a man just naturally walks in there and well, says say it. Well, say a 50 grand pay rise or I'm walking out t- tomorrow, someone else will hire well, me. Well, that's generally not the best <laughs> way to do it anyway. But it's a common... Pe- yeah, people do that. but there it's, are, le- it's leverage, right? It's, yeah, it is leverage, but there's ways of getting your voice heard at the table that mm. doesn't require thumping it, but it's also empowering women to understand that sometimes they don't even know the number of stories I've seen on Chooks sharing that women didn't even know that for 15 years they've been paid 20%, 30% less than their male colleague at the same time for the same length of service. Mm. And it's not that they're an underperformer or anything like that. It's just 
privilege that people don't even think twice about it. So I think it should be measured in businesses that Mm. if you've got people doing the same roles, the same thing, and people might say, oh, they're more experienced. Well, at a graduate level, if they're moving into the business at the same time, there is no excuse for that. Yeah. So over a 10 or 15-year business, and if they're bringing the same deal flow through, they should be getting the same incentives as anyone else. Yeah, no doubt. Well, experience sometimes might have old school thinking or as a new person coming it's into a role. how you define role. value. Exactly. It has new innovative approaches, has been working in a very innovative business before and can bring some of those ideas in, so... It's yeah. about a change and it is a systems change we're talking about. We haven't measured a lot of these things well in the past internally in businesses. I know one of the advisory boards that I sit on, they have a female founder. They actually measure how many women are in their leadership program, what the pay equity difference is, and that's a, that's a monthly accountable that they report on. Yeah, who's that? Can you say who that is? No, I won't no, say that okay. for confidentiality. But no, can but I tell you, when I read that report, it really made my heart smile. Yeah, yeah be, because well, that's, be that, that, reflects, that reflects contemporary business. Yeah, it would be great to get that name out there. That's why it's not, yeah, no, I can't do that. I tried. <laughs> um, so how do we educate the world in, to, to, in, a, in a way to, to close this gap? Like what can we do? Is it start in schools? Does it start with conversations at home? All, yeah. the, all the above, right? But well, I think it's not, a, it's not a tickle flick list. It's no, culture and practice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's about awareness. Um, women are saying what they need a lot more in business and professional life and balance in that space. They're carrying an uneven load. Um, but at the same time, there's active ways we can support our, our allies who help bend the gender investment gap or the pay gap. We, it's not just about gender, though. It's also yeah. about... Diversity and inclusion and as a society we're starting to recognise that that makes for better business decisions. You've got, you know, HBR and Harvest Business Review giving us, you know, academic journals about this now as thought leadership. So allyship, um, it's a simple thing as maybe if you're at next time you're at a boardroom table and a man interrupts a woman... Um, it might be the gentle, calm voice of a male ally next to them saying, excuse me, I really want to hear what X was saying or X was saying this, can she finish that point Mm. and we'll get to you. Um, It could be the simple fact of when you're chairing a meeting or in a business meeting making space for everyone, including the silent person at the table, to speak evenly and um, ensuring all voices are heard. So that inclusion thread, because often people, it's not that they're not thinking something incredibly useful and valuable, it's just genuinely they might be more introverted and men tend to fill up the space. Or I've been in meetings where, very high-level meetings, where I physically have had people ignore me with my hand at the and hand up to speak or they'll the person next to you will say the same point and they'll get acknowledged for it they'll get acknowledged for it yeah that's that's and i i would hope that that's genderless but i don't think that was the case no do you obviously being on a few boards and having been on a many over your uh, over your your years do you 
look for gender diversity when you go into a board role? Gender and, sorry, uh, sorry, diversity in general. Sorry. Uh, the people who I tend to work with tend to... Um, well, well, here's a simpler question. What's the genetic makeup <laughs> of most of the boards that you sit on right now? And is it a... Startup it, world, it, they tend to think differently. Mm. They're people, they're possible people. Yeah. They want Which, their yeah. outcome focused, yeah. um, their solution focused. Um, the teams that I'm involved in, generally there's always a female in the team mm -hmm. um, and I find that really exciting. All their female leaders who founded a business, it might be two, it might be one, might be someone who's inherited a business due to different circumstances, but they're looking at doing things in a different way and the existing programs don't fit them. So I... I guess I'm very fortunate that the people who are reaching out to me are atypical, but they're the people that I enjoy working yeah, with. Yeah. So I do very... I do look at it. I, I have applied for some of those more traditional spaces and yeah. continue to, and most of the boards that I'm involved in, they're very mindful of having a diversity of views of not just accounting lawyers and stuff like that, but gender, race, age, um, background, yeah, all of those things that right. make for better conversations because you don't want too much of one thing. You need to spread it across. There's wisdom in all of these perspectives. Mm. It's how you meld it into value for the company and value for society. Well, the good thing is you get to work with a lot of people that you actually genuinely, it's like your atypical type of client, which is great. Oh, who think for who are forward-thinking and innovative. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They, I think that's one thing that, is connected to all of them. They've got a growth appetite. Mm. They're innovative. Um, absolutely, the possible people. They're my. That's my tribe now. The solution makers, the change yeah. makers. Oh, feel free to call me in. I'm <laughs> no, I know part, that part of, part of the that's same. That's why job. we became friends, <laughs> sitting next to each other at that's, the AICD summit. Well, last that, year. that's it. So that was going to be my next point. We did meet last year at the AICD summit. Um, which is, for those who might not know, it's the Australian Institute of Company Directors Summit, which unfortunately we're not going to be in Sydney this year to go over again. would have been great if we could uh, in a couple of weeks' time. But can you provide insight? There might be some people who are listening right now who may not actually know the role of a board. <laughs> what does the, so what, what, does, what is the role of a board on a on Well, when company? you start a company, you become a director. Like you've got legal obligations yep. and you would know that as I, one of the directors. I'm here. asking from a, a point of yeah, yeah, yeah. So as your business gets bigger, you might need some more formalised governance structures that evolve if it's, you know, succeeds and it's on steroids and you've got lots and lots of teams and people and big payroll responsibilities, generally you end up with a board of directors that help you grow the business and transact uh, uh, some things that are strategic intentions mm -hmm. to uh, make the business um, meet the strategic plan. But also a board hires and fires a CEO mm -hmm. if it's not necessarily an owner. There's independent directors. Um, so who employs the board? The, the, the organisation will usually have some rules about how it recruits directors. Mm -hmm. The one in Sydney that I sit on um, is membership-based. It's a company limited. 
um, they go out to market looking for a skills matrix of people who can help them achieve their strategic intent. Mm -hmm. So for, for my situation, I had clinical governance and government skills. I also understood brand and reputational damage in a sector that's got two Royal Commissions going on at the yeah, moment. Yeah. Um, so they recruit people for specific skill sets which assist them in the strategic decision-making and their growth appetites and their strategic plans. They're also responsible for hiring, hiring and firing the CEO and making sure that from that higher level that the ship is facing the right direction and engaged with all the risks and aware of all the risks and undertaking all its legal obligations but also achieving the growth that needs to be done for the business. So what's the difference between a typical board and an advisory board? Advisory boards don't have the same legal obligations. Um, you have to make sure that you stay in strategic intent space. You're, so, not, so you're not legally liable. So if you saw the Banking Royal Commission, there were directors that I lost their careers or crown this week mm. where yeah. they've, they've come out of it where they did not undertake some of their obligations to the fullest extent in investigating the overseas um, high roller. They didn't ask enough hard questions. They weren't curious enough um, about some of the things that they were doing and they, you know, the money laundering thing and they've been found not to be suitable to hold a gaming licence. So, again, that is about understanding those very serious responsibilities of asking hard questions mm. as a company director. Um, an advisory board, your role is totally different. You're not got the legal responsibility. You still have to have professional indemnity insurance to work in that space, but it's more advisory so you give the advice to the directors, the directors go and execute the recommendations themselves. Yeah. But it's up to, I can recommend to Daniel what to do, but if Daniel and Michelle don't undertake it, yeah. it still sits with so Daniel, like a, Daniel and Michelle. It's almost like a mentoring role, is it? Or no, no. Is, it's a pay, a, is it payroll advisory? Or? Oh, yeah, yeah, it's paid. Um, it's not, advisory is bandied around a lot now. It's not your lawyer in your account. And there's lots of business banded as advisory yeah, yeah. an advisory board is different from that mm -hmm. advisory board is actually structured it's fit for purpose it's had a, a charter it has um a goal ideally you measure it at the beginning and you measure it at the end every year to see that it's matched its say top three strategic objectives yep. you you actually do a skills matrix just like a, a board does yep. to make sure that the people sitting at the table with the founders or the business owners are adding value to the business um, and it's achieving its goal. So you might find some pain points along the way of the three to five million or the half a million to 1.5, the 10, the yeah. 20, the 30, where the business is scaling and growing and then you either invest in the business and, and then lift your head up and go, oh, I'm working in the rushes every day but I'm not working on it. Mm -hmm. These people come and work alongside of you maybe once a month or once every two months or quarterly and give you that space to do that sort of strategic intent that then you go back and do your day-to-day -day execution. Because often a lot of people say, I'm so busy working in it, I'm not actually thinking about, they know there's these challenges coming but they either don't know how to problem solve them how to, who to connect with or 
how to get to A to B. So it's a wisdom space yep. for them to do those space, so for that a, safe sinking space. So for a small business that's thinking about starting an advisory board, what's the steps that they would normally take to do that? Um, so, so one that's scaling and growing and they're going, okay, right now we actually want to pull in some. Yeah, I think people confuse mentor circles with advisory boards yeah, as well. Um, that's a kitchen cabinet. That's what I call it. <laughs> you, you, fan, you stand them. Yep. Um, people who stands of Daniel's world and want to help your business grow. But yeah. an advisory board is actually fit for purpose, has a charter, as I said, and has three strategic things you're going to do each year or your agreed number. So the founders go and pick who they want though? Is that the no, way I, or is it? I go out and build advisory boards. Okay. So I'll do some exercises with yeah. them, um, narrow down the skill sets they need to help them achieve their business objectives, whether it's an exit, whether it's succession, whether it's a growth appetite, whether it's scale. Um, you know, the, it depends on where you are in that quad yeah. about what, we wrap around the business owner and it might be too soon. It Really, it's a business maturation piece. So you've got to be a bit down the track to be able to do it. But you, if you're going to scale quickly, having an advisory board is really a, might be a stepping stone you have before you grow into a formal governance board yeah, like okay. a company directorship. Yeah. And um, there are also advisory boards that are project-based that are for a specific challenge and time in a business to deal a deal with a challenge that they're going through and it might be there for 18 months and then it's done its value, it's yep. done its project and then you don't keep it. These advisory board positions don't tend not to be tenured in like you're with us for yeah, three or yeah, three yeah. years or six year terms like company directorships. It's when you've done the right amount of value to the business and you can see them flourishing but also you know that I've done as much as I can here now. It's my job to find the next person that's going to help them grow on the next stage. Yep. So when you are thinking about directorship and all the risks that come with it, and the you know the legalities and you're looking at if there's a slight oversight or someone within the business makes a decision that could potentially put your career and brand in jeopardy mm. purely because you may have not wholeheartedly been you know understood everything that was going on within the business why would anyone get involved as a director what what is there is there uh well, you have you have directors and office insurance, and there's there's insurances you can take that organisations and individuals can do that. But a lot of people aspire to be a, a company director, but don't really understand the serious obligations mm. that it is. I, I understand that pretty seriously, having come out of cabinet. Yeah, um, it's something I've always wanted to do, and my I don't find decision making hard, and I'm fairly responsible by nature. Because yeah. um, there is people that you see on their LinkedIn saying I'm on the board um, and, and then I don't really want to paint a brush by a title but they're sort of admin it, officer or whatever and they're saying they're on this board and I'm just thinking, wow. I think, there's a, I think there's a difference <laughs> between a board of management, yes. okay, that's doing some day-to-day -day housekeeping mm -hmm. um, in a small community organisation and being mindful of their responsibilities because they've still got legal yeah, responsibilities. Absolutely. And I've done my share of those sort of 
boards of management as well, but there are other boards, the higher and more complex the organisation goes, the more you've got to you've got to dive into the rushes when you need to sort a problem out, but you really need to be staying in that bigger strategic space and managing risk and the um, reputation of the organisation and its growth. That's where the best board culture pieces yeah. are. Um, so don't confuse acting like a board of management you still need to I, look, I'm a great believer in the Australian Institute of Company Directors. I've benefited from their chairs mentoring program. I was one of 45 women in Australia who did it last year. Right. But uh, lots of the startups down at the lot, there's some um, fixie scholarships that are out at the moment and I'm encouraging them all to go down and talk to Clinton and the team at the ASED and learn what a company director is. There's mm -hmm. an SME course, there's a there's a foundation course, which is two days, there's the company director five-day course, which I've done, and I go and do regular top-ups. There's a great set of webinars. There's also the Governance Institute that does another program that teaches you all about boards yep. of different levels and different calibres and how to find the right one for you yeah. but don't go in and just be flattered that someone's asked you to be on the board because you might not understand potentially <clears throat> the sting Great. in the tail because I know something always goes wrong yes. and sometimes you don't get a choice about where you serve. I think You've got to do your due diligence. If you're correct. a really good director, you, you get to go in and, and ask some hard questions before you sign on the dotted line and become legally responsible. Sometimes that doesn't, that didn't, I didn't get that sort of opportunity as a minister. You get what you get. Yeah. You don't get upset. You just, it's a privilege to serve mm. and you manage the environment you're in when you're there. Yeah. But with a board, if you're taking a seat at a board table, it's serious ethical integrity and financial risk at play and you need to do your due diligence and also be educated about your responsibilities. I think it's a really good point. I, I think there are a lot of people in this world and I know some, some people who are looking for board positions because it uh, looks good on their LinkedIn or on their resume and, and it can help them grow in their career but they don't actually realise some of the ramifications that can come if you know and the, and the legal responsibilities that they face so yes i did the five-day aicd course i learned more in those five days than i probably learned in the five years before that so uh, yeah it's very very beneficial it's a great um, it's a great investment and um it, i look at it as continuing education points uh, even the monthly magazine's great yeah it is and we're not getting this is not this sponsored. Is not sponsored. This, this, no, it's not sponsored. This is not I'm a just sponsored a fan. Thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I must admit, I this is not sponsored, but um, I, I do, I do think, and there's no one really else like them in in, in Australia, so that's why they are doing a good job because they get the best people in. So going back to the work that you do with entrepreneurs and startup founders, when you walk into a business, and even if you're setting up an advisory board, what what are some of the first things that you look at? when you walk into a business to, to help them? Is it, do you look at every, like the financials? Do you look at the emotional intelligence of the of the leaders or the above? What, what are some of the, the low-hanging fruit where um, you see uh, holding back some of these startups? Well, any anyone in the SME to that space, I start with why. Why do you want one? Is it something that you think 
is just sexy for investors or what are you actually going to do with it? Mm -hmm. um, that's my why. Why Why now? Yep. Like where are you at your journey that's painful and how does that contribute to why you want one? Mm -hmm. uh, the next thing is are these people advisable? Do they listen? Um, are they likely to follow through and execute the wisdom and suggestions and potentially um, it's not just about channels to market and sales and who you'll connect me to. It's about how you're going to mature the business and make it succeed. Um, they're the three that I'd be looking for. Yeah. Why, why now and making an emotional as as assessment of are they advisable. Is there a unicorn type as a startup founder or a business owner where because, you know, you talked about it, these people being purpose-led, so they come up with a really great idea, they have an excellent vision, they want to change the world in the product or service that they create, mm. but, yeah, they don't really know how to run a business <laughs> to do that. Is there are, a, are they smart enough to build the team around them correct, that, that yeah. help them to yeah. scale to success? Because their ideas may be great. We're all, we're all, none of us are yeah. short of ideas, but it's about actually getting down and dirty and running the business well, it's and also having it, the guts to do it. Yeah, it's a lot of hard work mm. working in a startup and a lot of self-sacrifice. And some of them, everyone seems to think startups are overnight success. Some of them aren't. <laughs> Most of them aren't. Mm. Um, are you able to put your ego aside and actually – Adapt. You have to be highly adaptable, I think. You have to be pretty dogged. You have to have a lot of self-belief but in a way that wise enough to build a team around you to make the business succeed. Um, I think that's why you see a lot of venture capital funds wrap layers of skills around these teams mm. and help them grow them yep. quickly mm -hmm. um, and they see the gap, gaps, they see the potential in the product or the service or whatever the offering is and they'll come in and fill all of those gaps and, you know, super accelerate the business. Yep. Um, the average startup founder doesn't get that advantage. They have to grind. Well, they have to grow it and figure out these things. So that's where like a stone and chalk down at Lot 14 is a great environment because it's supportive. Any of the startup hubs, the ICC, Think, yep. Think Lab, they're there where you're surrounded by people who think similarly and are looking to problem solve and there's wisdom in the team that supports the community in that space and connect you to mentors who've maybe been there, done that, or people that can problem solve legal things. So rather than you going and sorting a whole lot of this information out, you're in an ecosystem where that, that sort of generosity is able to be found more quickly. Than yeah. if you're sitting at home at your kitchen Absolutely. table, yeah, <laughs> hoping for the best. I'm interested in your in current events at the moment with the news and Facebook and what your take is on that. I know. Oh, yesterday. Yeah, with the. I was awake early yesterday, preparing for a new advisory board yeah. to start in Sydney. So I was all up doing my prep. So from a political aspect and from a giant tech company. I was sitting there watching my feed disappear. Mm. Literally I posted something I think from the Atlantic or something from because mm. I subscribe to a lot of overseas yeah. media stuff and I'd done something about Rush Limburger dying, this shock jock in America who was a big Trump supporter. Yeah. Yep. And he was a homophobe and a racist and a whole lot of things and he'd passed on and um, 
Yeah, I think he was one of these people who loved using the word feminazis. So I was putting a saying, oh, look, he's died, and literally it disappeared. It melted off my Facebook feed. Oh, wow. And I was going, and then it started flashing up in my feed of, you know, and that was about three hours before the rest of Australia woke up. And then it was just like one of those days you're thinking, oh, this is interesting. What's this about? Yeah, and a lot different opinions in my feed with my friends about, you know, content should be paid for. Um, and the Murdoch, the power of the Murdoch press and how the, they've got their deals, they've got their pound of flesh with Google and mm. other places. I'm not sure if the Facebook public liberation team executed that decision really well. I mean, if they were wanting to shock Australia awake by doing it, I probably wouldn't have done what they did. And obviously taking the fire and the health and oh, all of that yeah. stuff that's a reputational damage they've done themselves. Yeah. I think they probably, sh you know, when you share on Facebook, you get the warnings about COVID information being fact. And yeah, yeah, yeah. If they'd what, been smart with Australia, I think they would have done some saying, hey, this content may potentially go astray because of your government, like mm. they did with voting, yeah, voting yeah, yeah. in the US, you know, registered to vote. If they'd done a little campaign like that, if they'd been smart enough to do that sort of stuff, they would have brought some of their audience with them, but instead they pulled the plug. I don't think it was the best public relations thing they've done. No. But, you know, they survived Cambridge Analytica as well, yeah. you know. and Yeah. I just think... But how much, how many times do you learn from this? Well, I think anyone, I don't know. I, I'm not really for, I don't, I don't know where I really sit. I don't know if I support the government, what they're trying to do and because of the murder and support Murdoch and all that. What I, and I don't really support what Facebook are doing either. I don't think I support any business that can have so much control on what we read and what we don't read. Mm -hmm. That to me is scary um, from the if it, coming from the agendas of people at the top. But, yeah, it's an, it, it, it falls in an interesting space for me. How long do you think it will last for? I think it's pretty hard detente we've got going on. But... The first thing that happened yesterday afternoon, yesterday morning was people trying to say, has anyone got a workaround? Yeah. Everyone was, okay, maybe I'll use my Twitter feed and create mm. a news feed there. And well, for me, it's, my first thing that went through my head is this is an opportunity to build another app, <laughs> like another. Yeah. Well, what, what, what was, what's Facebook's equivalent right now? Are their shares going through the roof? Yeah, I think, look, there'll have to be some compromise that's eventually reached. Um, it'll certainly... Amongst my friends, sharing news is something that's commonplace. Um, and if you have a bigger global appetite, uh, there's lots of information out there. If you're curious in the world, like I am, well, you can I work. Yeah, and I don't, but I don't want to sit for hours on Google or Bing yeah. or whatever yeah. else is the biggest search engine in the world. I actually want to have it as a new as a news thread and I pick and choose what I want but yeah. I don't want an echo chamber at the same time but yeah. if I want to get the Scottish news and the Greek news and the South American news that was a great way of doing it so I think Facebook's kicked uh, own goal yeah. in a bad way yeah all own goals are not a good thing Last question before we go into our quick fire questions at oh, the end. Oh, didn't know we didn't know we had a rapid fire. This is um, like hard quiz. It is. Uh, I we try to spring them on because it's about to get your inner workings of your brain. So, j just lastly, what do you believe the future of work looks like? 
where where are we where we sit now in a pandemic um let's say future in the next two to five years what do you where do you believe we'll be post pandemic i still think there'll be people who will be coming into the city and transacting business. Do I think the high-rises will ever be as busy as they used to be? No, I think the nature of work, we've jumped five to ten years. Mm -hmm. As long as you've got a digital platform that allows you to communicate with your team, you can work remotely. I do that already. Mm -hmm. That's not going to be reflective for everyone in society, so it is a privilege to be able to do that. You've got to be able to perform and show value to your employer or whoever you're partnering with that you're coming stumping up with the goods every day and digital actually will help measure that better Mm. I think Um, so I think CBDs are going to be very different um, and I think suburbia is going to be different there'll be much more of a a flex back to community I think we're still in a space in a post-pandemic world where even when we've all had our vac shots and stuff I still reckon we've got 18 months to two and a half years before things might go back to a newer version of what it used to be Mm. like. Don't think we'll ever go back to uh, fully to what we had before. No. So it's been a big, not just a big mind step uh, and a big culture step, it'll be a big change in the number of high rises and you're already seeing big corps were shrinking the floors they had in high rises and people were already starting to work from home two days a week or so now it might be two days in the city, three days from home. I think you'll see that accelerated and stay there. I think you won't see as much transport needed, planes and domestic transport. You might come together for like in my world, board meetings three times in a year, not six times. That's not such a bad thing for the environment. It's not such a bad thing for life balance and thinking as long as you're achieving the same cultural bonding and things like that. So I think we're in this, everyone's customising now and seeing what works for their business. It's not so much a one-size-fits-all solution yet. Do you think it's giving rise to the gig economy, working from home, like... In the sense that um, people, everyone will just end up running their own business and gigging themselves out, subcontracting themselves out. No, I don't think. I still think there'll be still larger organisations mm. and and large employees that work from home. Though you can yeah. work for a massive insurance company, yeah. but you'll go into the office two days a week, and you might work from your home office, which has a sign like this, and do your zooms that way. You, you know, way. you look yeah. exactly the same as you would normally, but. I think there is uh, people get contracted in and out. You can see that. You've seen that over a long period of time, the casualisation. There is an industrial relation and economic empowerment piece around that. I'm glad to see the Uber delivery and the workplace health and safety Mm. and the deaths that being discussed. There are some severely constraining and detrimental outcomes to gig economy that we as a society still have to wrestle with. Um, so, but I, do I think CBD is going to change? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I think the writing's on the wall is pretty clear there, isn't it? Very good. Well, thank you very much. We'll, we'll, we'll jump into uh, oh, rapid fire. I thought that was some, one of them. Yeah, rapid fire. No, that was just the one thing I was interested in getting your thoughts. Obviously, being yeah. on boards, you're always thinking about the future of work and what it looks like strategically. Yeah, Sydney, uh, Sydney, everyone's working from home and we've done workplace surveys about that and what's good about it and what's not so good and, yeah, we're 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 mindfully thinking about that in in my Sydney board. 
It's a good time to concentrate on the culture of a business now, I think. Uh, <laughs> just a little That's great opportunity. <laughs> opportunity. <laughs> Absolutely. So quick fire questions we'll run through. Sometimes these can go on. We, we can go down a rabbit hole here. But we're big readers and big learners here at Creating Synergy and Synergy IQ. What's your number one book recommendation to leaders or anyone who's looking to grow their career or or, or business? Oh, um, there's a book about impact by Sir Ronald Cullen that I think is great. I've been reading over the summer. That's <laughs> right. So impact by Sir. I think it's Ronald Cullen. Ronald Cullen. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'll flick you the link. Flick in. the link. We'll put it in the show yeah, notes. Can yeah. you explain what what so? He um, and Mark Cadney did a series of let Mark Cadney did some BBC Reese lectures. Mm-hmm. Um, again, a great set of podcasts to listen to about um, the importance of capitalism, but also how it adapts and changes in society. Mm-hmm. And the role of climate and how we can cre- create creative solutions that work for businesses but also work for society. So um, social investment lending. Yeah. Um, so there's some of the books I've been reading and listening to over the summer. Excellent. So you go home, uh, this is another question now. So you go home tonight and you look at a 10-year-old photo of yourself. What advice would you give to yourself? Less on busy, more on you. Less on busy, more on you. Mm. That's pretty self-explanatory. I like that. That's very, very good. One item on your bucket list. To get my pilot license. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, you need to. I think you need to. I get to monkey around. I've got someone who's very generous and lets me monkey around and I get to do that. So you've flown a plane before? No, I haven't flown a plane. I'm not legally allowed to fly a plane, Daniel. Okay, so so you're not illegally – we're doing rabbit ears? (laughs) I get to sit in the front with someone who who, who, who humours me. Oh, well done. Excellent. So you want to get your license? Yeah. Yeah. Following the in your grandfather, your father, your grandfather's grandfather's footsteps. footsteps. Yeah, Uh, jump out of a plane. I want to do that. No, that's shocking. I'm never doing that. No, there's a bit of a thrill seek. (laughs) I've had episode off Westpac House for fundraising for Anglicare. Yeah. No, it was the it was the top fundraiser that no, year. No, I'm scared of heights. I couldn't even stand on this table without being scared. That was no, I'm only joking. That I was scared that day, but I did it. Brilliant. No, I'm not doing it. There's something about. Me being, I'm a heavy guy, right? So I just think everything will break <laughs> if I was. <laughs> I'm a little girl. I almost, you know, it was, it was a kilo of rope per metre. So I think it was 110 or 130 metres that I was carrying once I got off the edge. Yeah, wow. And you're leading back. And then about six months later I realised why my shoulder was so dodgy. Because you, yeah. I'd actually overstrained it but I just kept going for six months. So that's where I'm – that stuff about less busy and more you. More that's you. real. Spencer. It's learned. Yeah, but more you could end you, I think, <laughs> the way you're going about it. <laughs> no, I did it for kids with autism. Well, you did. You're right, 100%. If you had access to a time machine, yep. one, you know, only one return trip available, so no DeLorean, mm-hmm. where would you go? I would really love to be um, in Paris during the 1920s. Oh, why is that? 
arts and culture and um, impressionism and and that sort of 1880s to 1920s period. I did art at school and I love, I'm a member of the art gallery and I love a whole lot. I think this Europe then was a pretty amazing Mm. time. That sort of lot happened in Europe between the 1880s and the 80s. Yeah. Not a lot of it, not all of it fantastic, but it was pretty dynamic time. Yeah. I didn't even think of that, going back and watching Michelangelo paint. Yeah, I just think to be, there were a lot of intellectuals kicking around. They were, yeah. You know, Orwell was visiting, you know, you had all these, it was a bit of a melting pot. So you've actually thought about this? <laughs> it's just a question that it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, I'm a nerd. Brilliant. I love it. If you could have one super. And that wasn't a decade, you know, I sneaked it out to 60 years. Yeah, I know. But it's all right. You gave me a rough period that you wanted to go to that. I'm happy with that. I'll take that as an answer. If you had one superhero power, what would it be? Ah, I'm a great fan of Wonder Woman so I love her invisibility Ah. and it's so that's a a tool but her lasso of truth is another one I like so I would like to be invisible for what purpose would invisibility like what I've always wanted to understand what just thinking you can hear things you can see things you can manipulate things for better outcomes is that your integrity (laughs) lasso of truth yeah (laughs) that's true very good. I'm a child shelter from the 1977 <laughs> with a real Linda Carter, so yeah. And she was a feminist hero. Yeah, she, no, Wonder Woman's brilliant, so. Yeah. Um, yeah. Although the last movie was pretty crap. I haven't seen it, to be honest, which is strange because I've seen every other. All right, so what's your best dad slash mum joke? Oh, I don't, I no? wouldn't say my sense of humour is my strong suit. No, surely there's something stupid floating up out there. <laughs> yeah, okay, uh, Jurassic Park. <laughs> Sam Neill with the kid in the tree. Yeah. And, you know, do you think Dinkysaurus? Do you think he saw us? Yeah. Yeah, and dinosaurs are bigger that's, in our house. That's horrible. It well, is horrible. You, that's that the, blind, said the, blind, the blind dinosaur. So, do you yeah, think yeah, he saw yours, us? Yeah, yeah, I like it. We'll, we'll leave you it see, I there. don't even deliver it properly. <laughs> I don't do jokes. That's fine. I'm a consumer of humor. I made it look good for you. So, well done. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining us today on the podcast. How do we get in contact with you? How do we, where do we find you and how do we follow find, you? Look, find me on LinkedIn, the easiest way, Lisa Chesser, Lisa with a double E, obviously yep. strange, named after a Mona Lisa song from Nat King Cole. Oh, there you go. Um, and, yeah, reach out that way and um, always pretty much on LinkedIn and around that space. You um, are very active. Adelaide-based. Brilliant. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, Daniel, for having me. Thanks, guys. We'll catch you next time. Thank you once again for joining us here at Creating Synergy. It's been great spending this time with you. Please jump on to the Synergy IQ Facebook and LinkedIn page, where the discussion continues after the show. Join our mailing list so you'll know what's happening next at synergyiq.com.au. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. And if you really enjoyed it, please share it with your friends.